Well, I already said it's South Campus, but north and online, welcome. We're really glad that you are here this morning. We are in the middle of a series called Handle with Care, where we're talking about just cultural issues and the church and Christianity and how those kind of um, all intersect. So here's what we're going to do. I want us all to take a deep breath. I want us to let it out. And I want us to recognize something. You will be less uncomfortable than me. All right? Promise. My wife is uh, gonna be in this service and she's gonna hear me say the word sex more times than she's heard. Just, it's a lot of that word. So here's a question though to kind of just lean into the awkwardness. And don't answer because that will make it worse. Is sex good or bad? Right, I mean, we're in church, so you're gonna do the thing that we do in church and be like, yeah, I think it's good, but do we believe that? Like we, we wrestle with this issue of sex and we actually, it, the word in service, you immediately get uncomfortable. You can feel like the tension begin to rise in your chest as we go, oh, we're gonna spend like 30 minutes talking about this topic that I don't necessarily like to ever hear that word anyway. And here, here we're gonna do this in church. And I get that it can be uncomfortable. I get, I get that it can be awkward. Here's the weird thing though. We all think about it anyway. I mean, sex is everywhere in our culture, except church. And I grew up in the church. I, I was a pastor's kid, so my dad was a pastor. I, I grew up, I lived and breathed being in the church walls. And about the only time, and this is a level of vulnerability that I just, you're just gonna have to go with me for a second. About the only time my faith and sex intersected was a prayer that I used to pray. And I prayed it a lot. It was this, Jesus, I really want you to return, but I would like it to be after I get married, because I really want to have sex. I prayed that the Son of God would not return back for his bride until I got laid. That is wild. <laughs> That's nuts, right? And if you grew up in the church, you prayed that prayer. Don't act like you didn't. That's where like I, I, I want to know more about it. I want to experience it. I just, the church sees the issue of sex and we just throw on the brakes. We're like, I don't want anything to do with this topic. And we do it for a variety of reasons. One, because it's uncomfortable. We're just gonna lean into that this morning. Two, because the reality is this topic is also tied to trauma for so many people. So just the very uh, idea of sex and, and that whole topic is tied to so much wounding and hurt in people's lives. And so the church recognizes that and sometimes shies away from the topic because of that. We also recognize that as soon as I begin to preach about sex, there's about half the audience that immediately begins to tune out because you don't feel like the, the topic relates to you. Maybe you're single, maybe you've lost a spouse. You just go, I'm, this isn't my world, I don't, I, don't, I don't need this. And if that's you, if you sit in that camp, I have two things for you. The first is this, if the stats hold true, at some point in your life, you will be married. And therefore, the topic of sex should matter to you and God's heart for sex should matter to you. But maybe you are in the percentage of people that God is gonna call to a life of singleness. If that's the case, as great a gift as sex is, and I think it's great, and you're gonna hear that a bunch, as great and important a blessing as it is from the Lord, sex is not God. 
and where the culture has just derailed everything about sex is that they placed it on the throne. God is still on the throne. That has not changed. And if that's you and you go, wow, this is a topic that I can't necessarily relate to. I understand that. I get it. God's still on the throne. And as much as I love my wife, Sarah, she's incredible. I think she's unbelievable. She's not Jesus. And so even as important a topic as I think this is, if that's you and God calls you for a life of singleness, you still have the most important thing. It's not this. Most important thing is Jesus. You still get to have him. So um, the church is just, we've just run from it. it. But it's not even just the big C church that's run from it. We do it personally. Okay, so we are reading our Bibles. You know, you're just flipping through. You're just cruising along in the Old Testament. And you get to Song of Solomon. And you're like, oh, I'll start reading this. And then it says the word breast the first time. And you're like, I'm out. Like, I just, this can't be real in my Bible. I can't, I can't reconcile this, chat, this book in the Bible and my faith. So what we do is we avoid it. And then who becomes the authority on sex? Like, the boundaries, the rules, its needs. Like, who, who gets to tell everyone what sex is, why it matters, who gets to have it? We, we turn to social media. We get on TikTok, Instagram, go wild and do OnlyFans. We, we go online and we Google it. That's always got the right answers. We see it in movies. We see it in TV shows. We read about it in the books, in the books. We read about it in books. And we just, that's who determines what sex is. And so what the church has done, they've gone, wait a second. Wait a second, if that's what it is. And see, this all happened because the church was spineless with this issue. Because the church has run from the issue of sex and what God's heart is for it. And because of that, there's a void of knowledge. And so that void of knowledge was filled. And now that it has been filled by the culture, the church is going, wait a second, if sex looked like Young Gravy and Cardi B, if that's what sex is, if it, if it looks like what I see on, that Young Gravy and Cardi B is a reference that if you're 25 or under you get, no one else does. But if it's what I see online, if it's what I see in books, if it's what I see in the movies, if that's what sex is, then the only logical conclusion we can get to is that sex is bad and it's gross because that is what we see. We see it in its worst possible forms. So when it comes to this issue, we're gonna go at it head on and we're gonna start first with what God says about sex. His heart for sex. And then we're gonna look at the counterfeit version of sex what culture says sex is. And here's why. Because it's so much easier to see a counterfeit when you study the real thing. Before I came to work at Beltway, I was working at United. And uh, I worked back in the back and I counted the money, which is, I know, astonishing that I can count, but I counted the money. And when you do that, they, they make you start to, like they teach you how to spot counterfeits. And so the way they do that is they give you a real bill. You may think, why wouldn't you just study counterfeits? Because they could just give you 50 counterfeit bills and go, all right, this is the most common counterfeits. Look at these, see the way they're doing it. But what would happen the first time somebody passed you a counterfeit 50, you would look at it and your brain would be trying to process through all the 50 different ones that you'd seen and you'd miss it and you would accept a counterfeit instead of the real thing because you couldn't see the counterfeit because you didn't know what the real thing looks like. So they'd hand you the real bill. They would go, all right, hold it. Feel the way that it feels. 
smell it, know the way a counterfeit is. I mean, know the way a real one is so that when you're faced with a counterfeit, you're not trying to process all the other counterfeits. You're just feeling the one real bill and you know if it's real or not. Because sometimes the counterfeits could be really close. And can we be honest? Some of the abuses and misuses of sex are real close to the real thing. And if we're not careful and if we don't study the real thing, we can so easily accept a counterfeit instead of God's design. So here's a spoiler alert for you. God's design in your marriage is for you to have great sex. Sex should be something that breathes life and joy into our marriages. And we can so easily miss out on the life and the joy that should be brought into our marriage because we settle for whatever little lie we heard in our culture or all the little lies that we might hear from the enemy. And the enemy would love nothing more, nothing more, than to steal from you one of the greatest blessings that God gives to a married couple. If you go to the internet and you Google, what do married people fight about? You're gonna find a thousand different lists. On every list, there will be two things, money and sex. And the enemy has used this issue, this topic, to cause as much divisiveness in marriages as any other topic. And he's stealing from you and me the life that he has for us and the blessings that he offers to us. So what is God's design? For us to know that, we gotta go all the way back to the beginning. So if you brought a Bible, great, open it up to Genesis 2, very front of your Bible. If you didn't bring one, there's one around you, one underneath your chair. or the chair in front of you. If you're online, there's one right there for you. We're gonna be in Genesis 2, 20. The second part of that verse says this, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep, <clears throat> caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. I love the first part of this verse because it says, for Adam, there was no suitable helper found. And what we have to remember about Adam's station in life at this point is he is living, walking, interacting with the perfect holy God. I mean, he gets to be with God in an intimate way all the time. They are together. And still, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So, there comes Eve. And then that verse that we see so often at weddings, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife. And maybe, maybe your uh, version says cleave to his wife. That picture is just a holding fast, holding intertwined with one another. and the two shall become one flesh. That's sex, right? Two becoming one. That is what it is. And we could easily just reduce that all the way to it is they had sex, it's just the act of intercourse, but it's so much more than that. The, the blending together of two people into one flesh is a, a, a sinking of your souls, like you are melding your souls and your bodies together in a way unlike anything else, any other human relationship, any other experience. You come together in a way that is incomparable. You become one flesh. That's the picture that is given right there. And here we are at the very beginning of creation. We're Genesis 2. 
And here we have sex introduced. We're told what it is. If God's design was not for sex, why did he create it? I mean, we can read the Genesis story and there's no other conclusion except to say God is pro-sex. He's the one who just created it. And historically, one of the ways the church has avoided this topic is we've gone, okay, we recognize that sex is a necessary evil for procreation. So because of that, that is the purpose of sex. It is for procreation. Here's what I've always asked about that. If it was only for the purpose of procreation, couldn't God have come up with a different way for people to procreate? This is the God who just spoke the universe into existence. There were no stars, boom, stars, and he called them each by name. There was no earth, boom, earth. Think, he was so creative in his design that he made a horse with a 30-foot neck called a giraffe. Like, that is, that's how creative this guy was as he was creating. If he wanted there to be a different way for humanity to procreate, it would not have been hard for him to have a different design, and yet he designed it that way. And that text ends with, and they were both naked and unashamed. If there was supposed to be shame tied to sex, Adam and Eve, in the presence of a perfect, holy God, would have felt shame. And the best way I can relate this to you is this. If you're married and you traveled ever with your in-laws, and that first time you travel after you get married, my wife and I were 20 and 19 when we got married, High school kids, not necessarily the best way, but it worked for us. <laughs> Don't tell your parents, Jeffrey said I could get married at 19. It's what God allowed us to do. I'm not saying it's for you. Parents, email David. Um, <laughs> so our first trip with, with my wife's family, we were like 21 and 20. It's the end of the night. You tell everybody good night. And then you're gonna go off to your own bedroom, just the two of you. There is no level of uncomfortable that describes that moment. I remember thinking in my head going, I just wanna tell them, listen, I promise tonight we won't have sex, okay? We'll, I will wear a full body suit, I'll sleep in a different bed, I'll get a different hotel room, just stop looking at me like you think that might happen. And this is like, okay married sex and still we felt uncomfortable about it if there was supposed to be shame tied to sex adam and eve in the presence of a perfect holy god would have felt shame and yet the bible tells us they were naked and without shame because there was not supposed to be shame tied to sex another time that or another area that christians tend to look at sex is we look at it as if it's sinful like so many of the desires we see at walked out as it pertains to sex are sinful this is the Garden of Eden. There has been no sin yet. And here, there is sexual desires. Sexual desires are not caused by sin. We can look at it as if sex is dirty or sex is sinful. And yet, what Scripture shows us, going all the way back to the very beginning to creation, is that God is pro-sex. He is for sex. They were naked, without shame. They were two, becoming one flesh. Now, when sin enters the picture, things changed. All of a sudden, everything was different for all humanity, and we're gonna hit this a lot more next week. But I would be remiss if I didn't hit it a little bit now. Within 
God's design, he is 100% for sex and for it to be a blessing and a gift. But he put boundaries on it. So his boundary is a man and a woman, a husband and a wife in the confines of marriage. See, God gave sex to be this incredible blessing to humanity, this gift unlike anything else, this thing that would allow us to become one, to allow us to communicate in ways that we could never do, uh, to allow our souls to be mingled, to be connected to another person like that. It's this powerful, powerful, weighty gift. And then sin enters the picture, sullies it. And we begin to see it walked out in abuses. And we begin to see sexual partner and sexual partner and sexual partner. Different sexual experience, different screen, different screen, different screen. And what happens is every time this gift that was made for two souls to become one begins to pull those souls apart and we begin to feel a pulling and a yanking and a shredding and a tearing apart of our souls every time. And so God, knowing the power and the weight of this gift, he put boundaries on it because that's what a good parent does. My daughter, Ellie, got a bike this year for Christmas, a bike she was very excited about. It's a good gift. I didn't give it to her, so I can say that. You know what I didn't tell her? Ellie, don't worry about a helmet. Go ride on 8384, see what happens. Why wouldn't I tell her that? Think of how much fun a bike on the highway would be. No, because I... I know that that gift used the wrong way can actually cause more harm than never receiving the gift in the first place. I love Skittles. I mean, I adore Skittles. Anyone that works up here will tell you, I just, I love them. The regular kind, the sour ones are trash. So we have candy at my house all the time. You know what my kids do? Hey dad, for breakfast can I have candy? No, no, you can't have candy. Why? Candy's so good. It's delicious. It's nutritious. And I turned into a Dr. Seuss book. I apologize. But why? No, there's got to be a boundary to a good thing because a good thing used the wrong way all of a sudden causes harm. Instead of being something that is beneficial and a blessing, it becomes a curse. God is for us. And because he is for us, he sets boundaries on one of the most incredible gifts he offers to humanity. Within his design, a husband and wife, God could not be more pro-sex. He is for just great and incredible sex in marriages. Also, he's for sex that has nothing to do with procreation. We know that because there's a whole book of the Bible that talks about this issue. And if you want to read it this week, you can. I'm not gonna make you open up to it, but go read the Song of Solomon if you just wanna ride. And I'm gonna show you some examples of how God is pro-sex without the purpose of procreation. This is in Song of Solomon 4. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. Okay, just caveat, he did not marry his sister. The rest of this verse gets wild if so. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all choice spices, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. If you wonder what that verse is saying, 
It's saying what you think it's saying. This is the Bible, not, not the millennial Bible. Like this is the living, breathing word of God talking about something that has no, no purpose of procreation solely for pleasure and joy in a marriage. Maybe you're like, that's just a one-off. Let's just skip over a few verses. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples. Married dudes, that's worth a shot. It's not a bad line. It's pretty good. Shoot your shot. How can we read those verses and come up with any other conclusion except God wants you to have enjoyable, pleasurable sex within his boundaries? I mean, this is not describing get in and get out, have a kid sex. This isn't even describing the act of intercourse. It's still just sexual. God is pro-sex and he's for good sex. It is in his very design. And we were made to enjoy it and be blessed in it. And we're not gonna go here because this would even be a step too far. And you're like, you can go further than this? Sure. There are parts of our individual design and creation solely for the purpose of pleasure and sex. And the book of Psalms tells us that we were created in our mother's womb purposefully and intentionally. Every part of us was designed by him. And if that's the case, and there are parts of our design that are solely for the purpose, the, the purpose of pleasure and sex, how can we come up with any other conclusion except that God's plan for sex was for it to be full of joy and life and breathe life and joy into marriages. It's not just Song of Solomon, though. This is over in Proverbs. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, I said the last one was a good line. Fellas, Calling her a deer, probably not great in Texas. That's a little bit of a threat. For us to really grasp the magnitude of that scripture, we have to remember what water was like in this time. They had whole cities, regions, they were built around water sources. It wasn't like Abilene where even as drought stricken as we can be, we can usually go to the fountain, turn it on and it will pour out water. At this point, they surrounded their lives around water sources. Water brought them life. And here in the book of Proverbs, we see that sex should be something that brings life into a marriage, breathes life into it. And then Solomon goes on to say that as we delight in one another, we should be intoxicated with that love for one another and in each other. And we generally understand the idea of intoxication, but it's almost always in the negative. But have you ever experienced that, that euphoric moment, that moment where whatever you were experiencing was so breathtaking, so awe-inspiring that you began to feel lightheaded and you began to feel like the feelings of intoxication even without consuming anything that would make you intoxicated? Solomon is like, that is how you should feel about one another and in one another. God's pro-sex and he wants you to have great sex in your marriage. 
Because sex is more than just even the acts of intercourse. I told you it's the mingling of souls, but it's also the place that we communicate love and it's a place that we show affection. It's a place that we reveal parts of ourselves that no one else gets to see. It's the place where the most vulnerable is the place where the most trusting. All that happens within sex. And I know that so many of you are sitting there and you're going, yeah, that's fine. But you're just as bad as every movie that shows us how sex should be. That's just as fake. What you're saying right now is just as fanciful. It's just as fake. I've never experienced that. I'm not sure I ever could experience that. What if you could? Wouldn't that be so much better than settling for less than God's best and for giving the enemy opportunities to steal life from us where, the, where God gave us life? If you're married, you should want that type of intimate relationship, the Song of Solomon type intimate relationship with your spouse. And here's the crazy thing. If you want that, the key to it is learning to submit yourself to your spouse. That's not where you thought we were going, was it? And I see that in the book of Ephesians. It says this, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to should submit in everything to their husbands. And dudes are like, yes! We are going home. You will submit. It's not happening just on my birthday anymore. (laughs) Got rough news for you, fellas. That verse goes on. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. Skipping a few verses ahead. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Paul says, husbands, you've got to love your wife in the same way Christ loved the church. If we skip back a few verses or a few chapters, we see the way that Christ loved the church is he came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a brutal death took on the sins of all of humanity. The way that Christ loved the church is he gave all of himself to it. Just a side note for the dudes, a a real like come to Jesus moment. We love to grab hold of wives, submit to your husbands, forgetting that the command and the declaration is that we as men and as husbands are called to give all of who we are to our spouse, every bit of who we are. It's so easy to say submit, and it's so hard for us to remember that I gotta give you everything of me. And we see this abuse in the church as much as any other abuse in the church. We see this command for wives to submit and we skip over the part that says, men, you are supposed to die to yourself. That is the declaration of Ephesians 5. Then it ends with the verse we already read. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. To me, it sure seems like Paul is connecting the idea of submission one to another with the quality and the health of an intimate relationship within a marriage. And I don't know about you, but we think about submitting and submitting to our spouse. That doesn't often look like what our marriages look like. Often, when we begin to think about the bedroom and sex, we think only about ourselves. What do I want? What do I need? How often do I want it? How often do I need it? Why aren't they doing what I want them to do? Why will they not do what I want them to do? We think about me a lot. 
Not me. You think about, I messed that up in first service too, and it's just a way different example. We think about ourselves and what we want. And listen, there is a time and place for that. This, this issue, as much as any other, there will be a give and take in a, in a marriage. And there are gonna be times that a spouse thinking about themselves and going, I don't feel good, I'm not feeling it, this isn't just the right day. That, that is perfectly acceptable and fine and should happen in your marriages. But our goal shouldn't be looking for the opportunity to say no, it should be seeking out the chance to say yes for our spouse. Tim Keller says it this way. Sex is a way to give yourself totally to somebody else and say, I belong completely and totally and exclusively to you. As it pertains to our sex life, our main focus should be on our spouse and what they need and what they desire. How incredible would that be? But if we're gonna do that, if we're gonna learn to submit to our spouse in this area, we're gonna have to lead out in grace. So if I haven't stepped on your toes yet, I will right now. Women, just because it seems like your husband wants sex all the time doesn't mean he's a pervert. And we think that. Just because he wants it a lot more than you, you think, well, yeah, that's all you ever think about. When God designed him, God designed your spouse, your husband, visually. So you know what he does? He looks at you a lot. You're doing the dishes, he's looking at you. You're stepping out of the shower, he's really looking at you. You're sleeping, still probably looking at you. And I know that's real serial killery, but I'm sorry. It just, <laughs> he just loves to look at you. And then you know what happens as he looks at you? He starts thinking about you. And then as he's thinking about you, he starts to think about what he would like to do with you. And if we have a problem with that order, you gotta take it up with the big guy upstairs. He's the one who made your husband that way. Man, we thought we would get a pass. Nope. Just because your wife doesn't wake up every single morning, think about sex 200 times a day and go to bed still thinking about it, it doesn't mean that she's anti-sex or a prude. It means that she can have more than one thought in her brain. It does. So we can take offense to it and go, well, she's not thinking about it, but of course she's not. She's thinking about other stuff. She's thinking about the rough day at the office and how the next day she's got some projects that didn't get completed and she's gotta go take care of that and that's where her brain is going. Or maybe she's thinking about the house and the, the way it's at and like uh, the messes around the house or she's thinking about something with the kids. Like she's just, she's thinking about other things and that's okay. And what we have to do with this issue is we have to begin to give grace to our spouse for the love of God. Why would we not? He's a grace-filled God. Why do we not lead out in grace with our spouse? We don't, we look for every reason to be frustrated with them about this area. And if we're gonna learn to submit, we've gotta give grace to one another in this area. And the most practical way I can tell you to do that is this. Six words. Outdo one another in showing honor. What if this was our mode of operation? What if in our marriages, 
I did everything that I could to outdo my spouse and showing her honor, to outdo my spouse and showing her love, to outdo my spouse and showing her kindness, to outdo my spouse in, in any way that you could show. What if that is our mode of operation that we switch to? Is I want to do everything I can to outdo my spouse in the way that I love them and care for them. You would see a monumental shift in your marriage. And my wife and I have the opportunity lots of times over the last 16 years that we've been married to do premarital counseling with couples. And one of the books that I tell every couple to read is a book by Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. And the five love languages are, let's see if I can remember them on the fly, quality time, acts of service, words of affirmation, physical touch, and gifts. So those are the five love languages. And people all receive love one of those five ways for the most part. Here's the tough part. Probably... Your spouse receives it different than you. My wife's love language is acts of service. Mine is physical touch. And then the second one would be physical touch. And then the words of affirmation would be third. And then I just want her to touch me again. <laughs> that, is, uh, that is my love language. So it, if, uh, if, if I wanna show love to Sarah, I don't like sneak up behind her as she's doing something, wrap my hands around her waist and like kiss her on the neck. She'd be like, stop it. I don't like what you're doing. But if she comes home from a long day at the office and I left work early and I've got all the dishes put away, all the laundry put away and the kids are like moving in the right direction, what Sarah feels is loved and cared for and seen. And what we have to learn is that our natural tendency, see, often we show love in the same way we receive love instead of showing love in the way that they receive love, in the way our spouse receives love. Do you wanna know how much I care about the dishes in the sink? Not at all. I, I, would, I would take the dishes and I would just wash them and use them again and put them right back in the sink. Like the laundry doesn't matter. I can move it from couch to chair to couch to chair until I'm at the place that I must buy new clothes. I do not care, but it matters to Sarah. But if she were to do the same for me, I come home after a long day and she's done all the dishes, kids are moving in the right direction, laundry's put away. There's an 87% chance I don't even know that that happened. Don't ever see it. But if I walk in, she comes, she gives me a big old hug, plants a big kiss on me. I will feel love because she chose to love me in the way that I receive love, not in the way she gives love. And that is what it looks like for you to choose to outdo one another in showing honor. What would it look like if your spouse is serving? What would it look like for you to try to outdo them in the way that you serve them? Or spoke words of affirmation or give gifts or spent quality time? What would it look like if your goal was to outdo each other in the way that you love each other? What it would look like is a conscious decision to surrender yourself to your spouse and what we would receive in return is the blessing that comes with that, which according to Ephesians 5 sure seems like a physical life, an intimate life that is healthy and vibrant and full of joy and life. That's what it looks like. So often, we settle for less than God's best. And what he's offering us is an incredible blessing, an incredible gift. So here's my challenge for us married people. If we want that, I've got two pieces of advice for you. The first is this, talk about sex with one another. Just use words. 
write them down if you have to. But we avoid this topic, just like we avoid it in the church, we avoid it in our marriages, even though it is something that's supposed to breathe life into it, we avoid it because we're uncomfortable. Just talk about it. Unmet expectations is where frustration begins. Talk to one another about it. And maybe you've done that and it hasn't gone well. Talk to another couple about it who's a little bit ahead of you in life. A couple that loves Jesus, you trust their marriage, talk to them about it, ask them. Help us in this issue, we're struggling. Listen, this is too important an issue for us to just not deal with. And maybe that's too daunting. On Sundays and Wednesdays, we have a ministry called Reengage. It's an incredible ministry, incredible. It's a marriage ministry, it's not a sex ministry, it is a marriage ministry. But in there, you will spend time where you talk about this. You talk about it with one another, with other couples. This is just too important, uh, too important of an issue in marriages for us to just not deal with. I mean, it's this beautiful gift that we've watched the world hijack. And we're watching culture ride down the middle of 83, 84 without a helmet on, just careening towards disaster. And next week, we're going to hit on that. We're going to talk about the counterfeit. So I encourage you to be here. But for us, we can sometimes see God's boundaries as if he's anti-sex. Hopefully all those scriptures and so many more that are in there show us that that is not the case at all. God is so for you and so for you having a great, vibrant, life-giving sex life with your spouse. It's an incredible gift and a blessing that he offers to you. So let's just not settle for less. Let's chase after his heart for it. So I know we're done with the notes. If you will, if you'll put your stuff down, we're gonna take a moment to just respond because I know so many of you are sitting in here and you're going, that is not my marriage right now. But I want it to be. If you will, if you'll bow your heads because it's easier for us to respond, especially something like this. I think for many of us, the prayer we need to pray right now is for boldness. Boldness to really go after this, not just settle with ho-hum status quo. And then there's some of us that need to grab hold of that outdo one another in showing honor. We need to let that be our goal. Let that be our drive. If that's you, my, my encouragement for you, my challenge to you is just think about you in that. It's easy for us to think about how our spouse could outdo us in showing honor towards us. Think about you. What are ways this week, what are ways today that you can outdo your spouse showing her honor? You can serve them, love them, spend some time with them. What are some ways you can do that? Maybe for you, this, this topic is heavy because of abuse that you've experienced. If that's you, I just, from the bottom of my heart, I wanna say I'm sorry. I'm sorry that a gift from the Lord was used in a way that changed its whole purpose and caused you harm. That's not fair, and it's not right. And 
I'm sorry. But I know this. Our God is in the business of healing. After service, we'd love to pray for you at the front. They'll just heal the physical stuff. Heals the stuff going on with our emotions. Heals the stuff going on with our souls. He is the healer. Father, we thank you for the gifts you give us. God, this week, I ask for boldness. We chase after your heart and not settle for less than your best. It's in your name we pray. Amen.